to Heritage, and especially those of you that are visiting with us today as college students or parents, we're glad to have you as well as anyone else. If you're a first-timer with us, we're glad you're here, and uh, uh, it was great. Um, it's great to be back. I, I was going to say it was great to be away last week. That's not what I really mean. Uh, um, <laughs> We, uh, it was great to be at Jim and Mary, well, at Jim's funeral with Mary Lou, the longs, longtime missionaries that we have supported for over 30 years here at Heritage, and we sent them forward. Uh, they were in Bangladesh for all those years, and Jim went home to be with the Lord two weeks ago today. And uh, so I, I thought you'd want to see, as for those of you who know, um, Mary Lou and then um, Melanie and Megan and Megan's husband and Melanie's husband and Megan's uh, two kids right here. They were there, and of course Mary Lou. And it was uh, it was a real service to honor God. It was uh, well done. Some have asked where can we see it? How can we view it? All I can tell you is it's on Mary Lou's Facebook page. And beyond that, good luck getting to it. All right, that's. I don't know how that works, but anyway, it's there for you. And then, and then Mary Lou had said, uh, put out the word, she wanted everybody to, to dress colorfully. So uh, Tony Beckett and I, and so you remember Pastor Beckett was here, um, there we go, all right? Now there's only a few of us that actually took her up on that. I've never worn a Hawaiian shirt to a funeral before, not sure if I ever will again. Uh, maybe I could be buried in that, hon. I don't know. No, she's... <laughs> anyway, uh, so we had a great time. Uh, only Tony and myself, and um, we saw Fred Brock. Some of you old-timers remember Fred. He was there. He had a Hawaiian shirt on, and we saw Dave and Sandy Weinerth. Now, some of you know them as well. They were there, and Dave had a Hawaiian shirt on. Besides that, Heritage, we, up, we upheld the deal, man. I mean, it was like, Skip, you'd, you'd been right at home there with us. We needed you there. And, uh, but anyway, it, it, it went well. So uh, thank you for praying. Continue to pray for Mary Lou as we left last week. Um, I mean, it was he died on Sunday, and they buried him six days later. And... Um, she was saying there was all kinds of friends and family and everything else, and they were all going to be gone. And as you know, when you've lost a loved one, that's when it really hits. So be praying for Mary Lou and the girls and their families as well. So, First uh, Peter, and uh, we're, we're getting close to the end. Um, and we've encouraged you to mark up your Bibles. Uh, boy, take notes, put it, you know, write them in the mark, however you do that, or if you have a, a phone or a tablet and you do that, make sure you know we've encouraged you to memorize. And these uh, four verses that we're going to look at today in 1 Peter 5, verses 6 to 9, um, I've memorized with our uh, discipleship group, but, but great verses. I hope that you will take heart to there's some great truths to really stick in your heart. John, I love that, that statement about music just kind of writes it on your heart. That, that's true. Um, so in the fall of 1981, a very close friend of mine and I, both of us youth pastors, I was a youth pastor out in the Chicago area, and uh, we drove to Detroit to a youth conference there. 
Um, and uh, we got there, and uh, it was a, a great time. I was introduced to her principal that week that I'd never, I have never forgotten. A veteran youth pastor from a large church in Southern California had written books and all the rest of it was leading the first breakout session that I went to, and he was describing how that he had taught his students how to share the gospel, how to tell others about Jesus, and, and he was talking about how he gave them the, in great detail the gospel of Jesus Christ, how he gave them an outline, how he explained the ins and outs of approaching Jesus or of people with Jesus, and then on and on and on he went. He had it down. Everything that you could imagine you would need to know if you're going to tell somebody else about Jesus, he sought to taught his youth group that. And the day came for them to finally put into practice all the things that he had been teaching them. And they decided they'd meet together in their church at a, Sunday, a Saturday morning, and they'd pray together, and then they would go out into the city park. And there they would have, it was a large park there in town, and they would uh, talk with people about Jesus. So they, they met, they prayed, <clears throat> they loaded up in whatever vehicles, headed out to the park, and it was a disaster. He said uh, there are students who are just walking around the park aimlessly as if they had no idea what in the world they're supposed to be doing. Very few conversations. He said it was really bad. And uh, when it was all said and done and they got back to the church, it was over. The students went home. He said as a youth pastor, he sat there thinking and praying and evaluating, trying to figure out what had happened, trying to figure out what went wrong, what was it that he missed, and he said it hit him. He began to think about it. Uh, his students knew how to explain the gospel. They had it down. They had it memorized, but they didn't understand why they needed to share the gospel with people who did not know Jesus. They knew how, but they didn't know why they were trained to do that, and that made all the difference. And it was in that moment that he learned that he must show them why, then how. And that's the principle that I picked up and never forgot, and it's critical. And I'm not going to take the time this morning to, to dig into that principle, but it's found in our text here this morning. Show them why, then how at times in preaching or teaching the word of God, a specific command uh, will be in the text and it may be important and necessary to, to teach that command. Let's say it's the command to make disciples. Go make disciples. Our mission here at Heritage Baptist Church, that's why we exist. We exist to make disciples. We exist to make more people more like Jesus. That's making disciples of all nations. So we can dig into that, and, and I can preach on that and teach on that and make the point that we need to be making disciples. I can clarify it. I can illustrate it. I can give all kinds of uh, 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 support to show you where that's found elsewhere in the Bible to drive home that truth about the need to make disciples. But I may not have clearly explained how to do what I just taught. I may not have clearly talked about how 
to me, disciples. Talking about the need to do that, it's a command of the Word of God. It's right there in Matthew 28, but okay, great. How do we do that? And uh, so that's important. People have to know how to do what the Bible says. And it's interesting to know that the Bible does tell us that. But often we just talk about the need to do what the Bible says and don't dig into the how. That's critical. But it is also critical that they know why they should do it. So the how and the why and the order is important. Because when somebody knows the how but not the why, they lack an understanding of the need. Why should I do that? What's the big deal? There's no motivation. Why? I mean, so what? Great, you taught me how to share somebody, how, how to share Jesus with somebody, tell them about the gospel. But if I don't understand why I need to do that, what's the point? Okay, great. I learned some stuff and I know how to do it. But if I don't know why, I'm going to struggle. So again, show them why, then how. And I want you to keep that in mind as we go throughout our text this morning. So please open your Bibles with me to 1 Peter chapter 5, and we're going to look at verses 6 to 9. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 to 9. Now, if you don't have a copy of the Bible and would like to look on a Bible underneath the chair in front of you, should be a copy of the Bible and it is there, and in that Bible, page 852, 852, and it's 1 Peter chapter 5, and we're going to look at verses 6 through 9. Now, Peter wrote this letter. We've been studying 1 Peter for a while now. He wrote this letter. Chapter 1, verse 1 tells us, to God's elect, those who God chose to be saved, those who responded and believed. And, and he wrote to God's elect to challenge them to live differently in really difficult days. The believers there were, were beginning to face some persecution. It wasn't the official Roman uh, Empire persecution, but it was beginning. And it was there. And, and he was telling them as he wrote this letter to God's elect to, that they needed to live like followers of the resurrected Jesus. We sang about that. Right? I believe in the resurrection. I believe that Jesus died, that he rose again. Well, that's what he was writing to the followers of the resurrected Jesus and how they should live before their persecutors. Those who would be persecuting because that's what was happening. And he wanted them to make sure that as they, in verse 6 of chapter 1 says, that they suffer grief in all kinds of trials he wanted to make sure as they experienced that grief in that trial, in those persecutions, that they lived holy lives. Verse 15 of chapter 1. So as Peter wraps that all up and we get to chapter 5, he brings, bringing the letter to a close. He presents the churches with, I see two closing challenges in these four verses. Two challenges for living differently. Living differently in the midst of of persecution and suffering. And he tells them why and then how. So we have the motivation and the know-how to be able to live differently. And the two challenges that he leaves with us in these verses, I believe, are to be humble and to be vigilant. To be humble and be vigilant. Now you say, what's vigilant? We'll get to that, all right? But to be humble. So let's look at the first closing challenge. To be humble. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. And this is what Peter says. 
Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. There it is. Humble yourselves. Now, humility. That's one of those things that we, we really kind of know what it is, but it's hard to describe it. And when we talk about the word humble, to be humble, humility, it literally means to bring to the ground or to make level, to bring low. Uh, figuratively, it's to cause someone to lose prestige or status. You no longer have the position that you used to have. And, and that's the idea. You've been humbled. You've been made low. And here, Peter's saying, humble yourselves. You choose to humble yourself. And he's saying, under the mighty hand of God. It's a call to make a decision. Not to be proud. Not to think more highly of yourself than you ought. That's what we're told in Scripture. Don't think much of yourself. Think of God. And, and as he's putting it forth here, when he says, humble yourselves, it's said in such a way that it's, there's got to be a sense of urgency. It means do this now. Don't delay. Don't waste time. Humble yourselves. It's not something to think about for next month. It's something to do right now. Humble yourselves. Again, the opposite of pride, and it causes us to recognize our need for complete dependence on God, not on ourselves. It's not, I can do, I don't need anything. I'm good. I got this. I'm okay. I can do it. No, that's not what we're supposed to be thinking. We need to be humbling ourselves, and as it says, under God's mighty hand. Now, I came across an illustration that, that, that would, I thought, wow, this is really good. And, and the idea was, as we are to humble ourselves, we're, we're to allow God to, to make us humble. We're to put ourselves, we're to submit to him. And the illustration was this, put yourself under God's working in your life, much as if you needed surgery. I know we got a lot of people sitting here who have had knee surgery of one kind or the other. Maybe it's a knee replacement. Maybe it's a torn ACL and you had to have that fixed or you had to have the meniscus trimmed up, whatever it may be. Well, if you decide you're going to get that fixed, you're going to say, all right, you talk to the doctor, the surgeon who says, we got to go in there. We got to open up that knee. We somehow have got to do surgery. You have to make a choice to put yourself under the mighty, skillful hand of that doctor to fix your knee, right? So when you say, okay, let's do surgery, what happens? They wheel you into the emergency room or the surgical room, right, the operating room, and they knock you out, right? If you've never had surgery, um, that's what they do. So you don't feel the pain, right? That, you don't want to feel that. So they put you to sleep. You don't know what's going on. You trust the doctor. You're putting yourself under the mighty hand and skill of that doctor. You're submitting to his knowledge, his medical understanding. 
You are letting him do whatever he wants to do with that knee. And you believe you're trusting him. It's going to fix it, right? That's the idea. Listen, when Peter says, humble yourselves under God's mighty hand, it's the exact same thing. You're trusting God. You're saying, God, this could be painful. I don't know what this is going to look like. I don't know what's going to happen, but I am willing to submit. I am willing to put myself under your mighty hand and trust you to do what you need to do in my life. That's it. That's humility. I'm not in charge. I don't know best. I don't have any better ideas. My opinion doesn't matter. When he puts me to sleep, it's his choice, and he will do what's best for me, and that's the way it is with God. When we humble ourselves, put ourselves under God's mighty hand. That's the command. That is a command here. It's an imperative. And, and then as we talk about that, because he is sovereign and in control, that idea of the mighty hand of God, think about that. That's the same hand that delivered the nation of Israel from Egypt, the 400 years of slavery. He took them right to the Red Sea. And we could go all the way back through, all throughout the Word of God, the Old Testament, the New, to see all the miracles that God did in His power, in His sovereignty, His mighty hand delivered God's people time and time and time and time again. And I'm sure if we took the time to ask for testimonies here this morning, for you to tell us how God has displayed his mighty power in your life, I'll bet we could, we could stand in front of this microphone for two or three or four or five hours all day long with people telling us about how they've seen God's mighty hand in their lives. We know that. Peter's saying, you choose to put yourself under God's mighty hand. And here's the why. Now, that's the command, right? Why should I do that? Because Peter says this, he will lift you up in due time. When we put ourselves, when we humble ourselves and let God do with us what he wants to do, to, to mold our lives, to make our lives in the way that he has in mind, we will be lifted up in due time, that he may lift you up in due time. A few weeks ago, John Mitchell talked about 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 6, and he talked about there for a little while. Some of you who are here will remember that. If not, go back and check out verse 6 of chapter 1, for a little while. And he talked about in, in that God has a plan, and God's plan comes at God's pace in due time. You see, Peter doesn't change his story. That's chapter 1. He gets to chapter 5, and he's talking about in due time, at God's pace, when God is ready. That's what he's saying here, in due time, in God's time. Remember the why, then the how. And as we talk about that, God is never late. John made that point. God is never late, right? We all know what it is to be late. 
God is never late. In his time, he accomplishes his perfect plan and will when we place ourselves willingly, humbly under his mighty hand. And Peter was assuring them that God would raise them up even in the midst of persecution, that that persecution might be only for a little while. That's what he says in chapter 1. And that in due time, God would lift them up and out of that persecution. But in his time... And they would be better off for their suffering. I'm not going to take the time to dig into James chapter 1. But if you'll look at James chapter 1 verses oh, 2 through 5. And you'll find that we're told that we're to rejoice in all kinds of trials that God brings our way. Why does he say that? So that in the end you may be mature and complete, not lacking any good thing. Why? Because you put yourself under the mighty hand of God, and cooperated with him. It says, let him do his work. You read James. Read those verses in James. Chapter 1, verses 2 through 5. And you'll see, you let God do his work. You cooperate with him. You put yourself under his mighty hand, and he will exalt you in due time, and you will be better for it. That's why. That's why we humble ourselves. And here's the how. How do you do that? Okay. I was sharing what I was preaching this week earlier with Jane. During the week, I said, hon, this is where I'm going with this. And she said, okay, but, but how do you humble yourself? I said, I'm glad you asked. It says it right here. Look at it as he goes on. Peter says, humble yourselves, therefore, verse 6, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Right? That's the why. Here's the how. By... Casting all your anxiety on him. That's how. Show them why, then how. Peter says, here's the why, because God wants to lift you up in due time. You'll be better for it. And here's how you humble yourself. It's by casting all your anxiety on him. Folks, if you haven't heard the word anxiety in the last year or two, you haven't been listening because it's everywhere. We hear it all described as that's students after COVID, they all came back to school and they're just, the levels of anxiety in our students have just gone through the roof. And the same is true with adults. The percentage of adults struggling with anxiety and worry are just higher than ever. Okay, and, and I think what's happened is we as believers have kind of listened and we've said, okay, then I can talk about my anxiety. Okay, we can have anxiety too, but we think it's okay to stay that way. Because our culture talks about it every day, we think we can claim anxiety and that we can stay that way as long as we need to. No! Because God says, no, no, no. You take your anxiety to God. You cast your anxiety on him. You throw it. That The word cast means throw it forcefully. We cannot. Uh, I, I feel like we've been, we, we've been enabled. Our culture says, okay, anxiety is everywhere. And we've been enabled to stay that way. Folks. That's not the case for God's people. 
for those of us who know Jesus Christ, God says right here, 1 Peter 5 and verse 7, casting all your anxiety on him. You need to do that. Now, that's not a separate command. Sometimes we read verses 6 and 7, and we read it, all right, humble yourselves is command number one. Command number two is cast all your anxiety on him. It's really not that way. And, and I'm not going to give you a, an English grammar lesson with Greek, but the idea is it is we are to humble ourselves by casting our anxiety on him. That's what Peter is saying. That's what the text says. We are to humble ourselves by casting our anxieties on him. That's how we get humble. What does that mean? Because when we hold on to our worries, when we hold on to our cares, we're not giving them to God. We think, I'm good enough. I just complain and I moan and I groan all about it, but that doesn't solve anything. No, we give them to God when we hold on to them. We're, we don't, we're acting as if we don't need God. And the Bible says, cast your anxieties on him. You see, anxiety, the word itself, it means to divide, to draw in different directions. You ever, you ever heard somebody say, yeah, I feel like I'm be, be being pulled in a million directions, right? You, you almost feel like you got all kinds of ropes tied to you and everybody's pulling them, pulling them this way. And, and parents, we're, we're great for saying that with our kids, right? You know, this kid is pulling me that direction. This kid's pulling me that direction. Other kid's pulling me that direction. I got my boss pulling me this direction. And school is pulling me that direction. And, and I'm being pulled in all these directions. That's the word anxiety. To draw in different directions, which is exactly what anxiety does to us. It will pull us apart. And that is exactly how we humble ourselves. By giving those anxieties, giving those worries to God. The cares and the concerns. It describes the state of being pulled apart. It's describing a state of being distracted by our concerns and worries. Now, just so you know, I recognize there are things that we ought to be concerned about. Uh, both anxiety and worry typically spring from natural and legitimate concerns that we face in life, right? That's the way they start. You know, somebody may lose their job. Oh, man, how am I going to pay the mortgage? How am I going to pay the utilities? How am I going to pay the car payment? How am I going to feed my kids? How am I going to do this? How am I? Okay. There are, but, so there's a legitimate concern there. But legitimate concerns are handled wrongly when they do one or more of the following of these three things. And I, I found these and I thought, I got, I got to share this this morning. So that concern, that worry becomes wrong when they're handled in one of these three. When one of these three ways, and I, and I have them here for you. There you go. Number one, when, when your worries or, or concerns become dominating concerns in your life and lead to fear. If that's what you let worry do to you, bring you to fear, and it dominates your thinking, it's not legitimate. It's sin. Secondly, when, when one of those concerns destroys our perspective on life and causes us to forget that God exists and cares about us. 
You see, when we worry, we're not thinking about how much God loves us, or we wouldn't worry. Number three, moves us to drift into an attitude of constant worry and concern over a future that we cannot control. And that's one of the things, worry over the future. After COVID, I mean, you just read all the stuff that's out there. Everybody, I don't know what's going to happen now. Life is so uncertain. Well, we can't control that. But if we allow that to drift into an attitude of constant worry and concern over things that we can't control. Can I talk about politics? We can't control that. And sometimes that's all we talk about. Folks, it's God's plan. It's his business. It's not our worry. We may not like it. It may be totally opposed to what we know the Bible teaches, but that's not our business. We stand for truth. We'll talk about that in a minute. But we don't worry. We don't get anxious. And when we stay anxious, when in pride we refuse to humble ourselves under God's mighty hand and his authority in our life, when we hold on to our anxiety rather than casting it to the Lord, that's one thing. It's called sin. And and we justify and rationalize our way around it and think we can come up with reasons why we deserve to be able to be anxious, why we deserve to be worried. There's not a concern. No, there is no. There is no justification for us to hold on to anxiety and worry. I love how the New Living Translation puts Philippians 4, 6. It says it this way. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Huh? Doesn't get any better than that, folks. Next time you're struggling with worry or anxiety or fear, don't worry about anything. That's the Bible. That's what God says. Philippians 4, 6. You look it up in any translation you want. Don't worry about anything. Why? That means it's sin if you do. Rather, instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all that he's done. As I was thinking this week, I came up with these thoughts. Humility is thinking about God, not yourself. Some people say humility means you think less of yourself. Well, I I think it's just thinking about God, not yourself. Anxiety is thinking about yourself, not God. You see the opposite there? And that's why we get stuck in worry, and that's why we get all fretting and fussing and fuming and worried and sick and controlled by it all. And Why? Because we're not thinking about God, we're thinking about ourselves. And we need to get that, you know, and we'll see in a minute about our enemy. But that's critical. Grab hold of that. Second challenge and let me say this as as peter wraps up he says at the end of verse seven casting all your anxiety on him why because he cares for you people if you know jesus christ as your savior wow 
Because he cares for you. You see, when we worry, we're acting as if God's not even around. We're acting as if God's turned his back on us. We're acting as if God's taken a nap. We're acting as if he's on vacation. You say, that's kind of disrespectful. No, I don't mean it that way. I'm saying how we act. And how we act about that is disrespectful. In fact, it's sin. Why? Because he does care for us. He's got our backs. We don't need to worry about it. He cares for us. The second closing challenge, verses 8 and 9, be vigilant. Peter says this, verse 8, look at it. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Vigilant, I like that word. It's, it's kind of, actually, it's an old King James word. But I like the word because it really means what those first two words say. When, when Peter says, be alert and of sober mind, he's saying, be vigilant. In one word, that's what he's saying, be vigilant. It's a combination of those words. He's saying, be watchful and attentive. Be self-controlled and alert. Stay awake. Be spiritually alert. Be in a constant state of readiness. Make sure your mind, you're filling your mind with the Bible, with God's truth. Why? So that you can think clearly. When we're all focused on what's going on in our culture and the world around us, we're not thinking clearly. We're thinking emotionally. And that's not usually clear. We've got to think clearly, spiritually mindedness. And here's the why. When he says, be alert and of sober mind. Why? Because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Listen, the devil is on the prowl for you. That, that's not stretching it by any, anybody's imagination. It's what Peter said. It's what we're told here. The devil is on the prowl. Jesus told the Pharisees, in John chapter 8, verse 44, he said, Your father, the devil, is a liar and the father of lies. Listen, the devil is going to whisper lies in your ear. That's why we need to be thinking clearly. That's why we need to be sober and alert. Because he's going to whisper lies into our ears. He's going to tell you things that aren't true. How do you know? Right here. Right here. Had a conversation the other night when I was out with one of our officers, police officers. We got to talking about all the different churches and the different religions. And I said, well, tell me what you believe. And he did. And I said, well, how do you know that's true? Because I believe something different. And his girlfriend believes even something different. So we got three or four different positions here. How do we know which is which? And, and if we started talking and interviewing all kinds of people, we'd come up with a whole lot more than three or four. How do we know which one's right? He said, well, it's just the way I, what I'm comfortable with. And I said, well, okay, that's great. But everybody's comfortable with what they believe in their own life. 
So there's one standard. It's the Bible. It's the Bible. That's how we know. That's how we make sense of all of the different religions that are out there. And, and that's what we need to do. We need to know God's truth so that when the devil is whispering lies in our ear and he's using the culture and people all around us to do that, we know what's right and what's not. We know what's truth and what's a lie because we know what God says. It's critical that we understand that. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he says that Satan is subtle and he's a deceiver and he masquerades as an angel of light. He's not that guy with a pitchfork and a long pointed tail and horns. He might be the good friend sitting right next to you that's trying to tell you something else other than what the Bible has to say. It's critical that we understand that. He will fill your mind. The devil will fill your mind with pride and worry and fear and doubt. So why do we need to be alert and of a sober mind? That's the why because the devil is out to get us. How do we take care of that? Because he says then, resist him, standing firm in the faith. That's how. We stand against the devil. That's how we gain the victory. That's how we know what's true and what's a lie. We resist him standing firm in the faith. Listen, to stand against the devil doesn't mean we go on the offensive. We cannot beat the devil. He is stronger than us. He's not stronger than God, but he is stronger than us. We can't beat him. What do we do? We claim God's truth. That's what Peter says, stand firm in the faith. Resist him standing firm in the faith. That's how we stand against the devil. We resist him. We stand firm in the faith. That doesn't mean we take the offensive. It's Satan's desire to get the Christian to doubt, to disbelieve, to dismiss truth, to deny it, to disregard it, to disobey what God has said. Satan did that with Adam and Eve from the very start. We stand in what we believe. We just sang that song this morning. I believe in God the Father. I believe in Christ the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit, right? And on and on. I believe in the resurrection. I believe that he's coming again. We believe. What do we believe? We believe it's right here. And already Peter is laid out in Scripture. We've been chosen by God the Father. We are his. We've been given a new birth unto a living hope. We have a certain future. We've been provided with an inheritance that will never perish. It doesn't matter what the stock, mar stock market does to our inheritance. It's there and it will not perish. It can't be destroyed. We're shielded by God's power, chapter 1, verse 5. We've been called out of darkness into God's wonderful light. We don't have to be there. And then he says this. He views us as followers of Jesus Christ. We are God's chosen people. We are a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation. We are God's special possession. That's us if we know Jesus. We stand on that. Stand firm in that truth. And when the devil whispers something else in your ear, you know 
who you are because you know what God says we are. And then he goes on in the rest of verse 9 there. Peter says this. He says, Because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Because you know. We don't have to think. The devil might whisper, See, you're, you're, you're in trouble. That's because you're, you're, you believe in the wrong thing. No. This is, this is God's plan for all believers who will live godly in Christ Jesus. So how do we respond? What now? What do we do with all of this? Well, two thoughts. Number one, be like Jesus. Be like Jesus. Look at verse, look back to chapter 2 of 1 Peter, verse 21. This is what Peter, this is what Peter said early. As he's talking about Jesus Christ, he said, to this you were called, what? <coughs> Suffering. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you. So he's saying you were called to suffer because Christ suffered for you. Then he goes on and he says, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. We talk all the time here. More people, more like Jesus. We need to be more like Jesus. You could check out Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 or 8 to 11, verses 5 to 11. You want to know what it means to be humble? Read how Jesus humbled himself. We follow the example that Jesus set for us. That's what Peter says, chapter 2, verse 21. So we be like Jesus. Humble yourselves under God's mighty hand. God opposes the proud. Secondly, pay attention to the devil. Peter knew firsthand what it was to do that. And the night Jesus was betrayed, when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane with Peter, Peter, James, and John, he told Peter, James, and John to sit and pray while he went further ahead and talked to God. He said pray. He came back, and if you remember the story, Matthew 26, Jesus came back, and what was going on? What were the disciples doing? Sleeping. And he says to all of them, but the Bible, if you look at it, it says he said it to Peter. He said, Peter, watch and pray. Watch. Same word as right here. Be alert. Same word. Watch and pray that you don't enter into temptation. Because spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. That's, Peter knew what it was. And you know what? It wasn't long after that when Peter denied Jesus three times. He didn't watch and he didn't pray. We need to be like Jesus. We need to pay attention to the devil. Be humble. And be ready for the prowling around of the devil in your life. Stand firm on what you believe. Father, thank you for your word. So great to know that you don't just tell us to do something, but you tell us why we need to do it and then how to get it done. 
God, help us to humble ourselves. Help us to put ourselves under your mighty hand, to be totally dependent upon you, to allow you to do your work in our lives, to make us more like Jesus. And God, help us to pay attention to Satan because he's out to get us. He's prowling around, ready to nail us. God, help us to stand on the truth that we know that you've given us in your word. And Father, if there are any here today who are struggling with anxiety or fear or uncertainty or doubt, worried, sick, oh God, I pray that you'd give them victory. Help them to cast their cares on you. And God, if there are any here today who don't know Jesus, open their hearts to see, God, you sent Jesus to die for them so their sin could be forgiven, so that they could have an unbelievable relationship with you as a child, now no longer an enemy, for it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.